My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to bring the word of Christ to you this morning. It's a joy to sit underneath that word and worship alongside you as well. Please stay here in Mark chapter 14. That's where we will be for the duration of this message. I am not a fan of abstract art. I just have never, I don't get it. I honestly, if you put a Jackson Pollock painting down in front of me and I came out and saw something that maybe my girls had done, I could not tell you the difference. And yet, a Jackson Pollock painting not too long ago went for $140 million. There's a value estimation on that painting that somebody sees that I obviously do not see. I would never pay $140 million for a painting, much, much less a painting like that. Value. Some people see it, some people don't. The same could be said about Jesus. Some people see the value of Jesus and some people don't. Tragically, most don't. Many do not see the value of Jesus. And this morning in our text, Mark is highlighting that fact. And as we've seen before, Mark loves to make these sandwiches in his gospel where he draws highlight, he highlights something, a, a theme, a point inside. He kind of weaves two stories together. And this morning what we see is this contrast between those who are not valuing Jesus and those that do. On the outside of our text, we see the scribes and the priests and we see Judas. They're so devaluing Jesus that they're hostile against Jesus. And then in the middle, we see a beautiful picture of devotion to Jesus by an anonymous woman who we learn from the other gospels. name is Mary. So the question for us this morning is how valuable is Jesus to you? What is Jesus worth? To you. Mary gets it. Do we get it? Will we get it? And unlike a painting, there's really no consequence if we don't like somebody's art project. But if we don't like Jesus, if we don't value Jesus, there's an eternity of consequence. We, we are actually held accountable for how we treasure or not treasure Jesus. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray for the Lord's help that He may open up our eyes to not just see Jesus, but to savor Him, to treasure Him. Let's pray for His help. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a speaking God that pursues us that desires to open up our eyes to the beauty and the glory of Your Son, Jesus. And we ask God this morning that You would do a great work in us. Not just open up our minds, but open up our hearts so that we would think rightly about Jesus and then we would have right affections for Jesus. For our eternal joy and for His 
ultimate glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we begin, and we're going to talk about the two sides of the sandwich together, and then look at Mary. So the first thing we see is a devaluing of Jesus that leads to hostile opposition to Jesus. Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So it's Wednesday of Passion Week, Passover Week. They're, they're celebrating Passover, but Passover is specifically going to be celebrated uniquely two days from now. They're celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this takes us all the way back 1,400 years ago prior to this time where they're celebrating the miraculous deliverance that God did on their behalf as he pulled them out from the terrible enslaving arm of Pharaoh, the oppressing arm of Egypt, brings them out in the wilderness and gives them their own land. It was a miraculous rescue, the last plague of which the Israelites were told to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb and to wipe the blood of that lamb over the doorpost as the angel of death would come swooping down through Egypt. And that angel, if the angel saw blood on the doorpost, the angel would pass over. But if the angel did not see blood on the doorpost, the angel would slaughter the firstborn in the home. And that ultimately leads to the Israelites being freed, Pharaoh can't have any more of them, so he lets them go. He, of course, is going to change his mind and chase them and be destroyed in the waters. But that's the miraculous deliverance, and the people of God are pumped, and they've got their own land. They've been rescued from Egypt, and they celebrate this. And God has instituted the Passover meal as this act of worship and an act of remembrance for them to do every year. It's the most important time of the year, and here they are, 1,400 years later, still celebrating, still remembering God's great deliverance out of Egypt. Everybody has descended upon Jerusalem for this great annual event. But not everybody's remembering and thinking about God. The scribes, the chief priests, they've got something else on their minds other than worshiping God and leading God's people in worship. They've got on their minds this nuisance of a person named Jesus of Nazareth. He's a pest to them. They can't get him out of their minds. It's like the pest that is keep destroying my grass. I don't even know what it is. It comes out at night is it a mole, a vole, a skunk, a raccoon? I don't know, but it's a pest and it's driving me crazy. It's on my turf. I don't like it. And for these scribes, Jesus was on their turf. And they didn't like it. It was getting them very frustrated. They've been trying to deal with this pest since Mark chapter 3. This whole gospel whole gospel letter, as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, there's opposition. We don't like him. He comes with authority. He comes in the presence of Almighty God. He's a threat to our kingdoms. 
So they don't like him and they want him gone. And here, opposition and that just anger is mounting. And now they say with the finality, it's time. It's time to get rid of this pest. He is too close to us and too much of a threat to us. So they say they want to arrest him in stealth. And this is like a violent term. Like they, they, want, they want to grab him and seize him and to do it in a treacherous form so that then they may kill him. Not have a talk with him and try to reason with him. They want him gone, destroyed, wiped off the face of the planet. And their intent about this shows you the, the level of wickedness, right? They've got their whiteboard out. They're brainstorming. How do we get rid of this man, Jesus? Let's design a play. Let's all huddle and figure this out. But they can't figure it out because there's a big problem. The crowd is in the way. They can't kill Jesus because the crowd could riot. The crowd likes Jesus. It shows you that they, are, they know something's not right here. The crowd is on Jesus' side, at least in a superficial way, and they don't want to cause a riot. They're trying to do this in the cover of darkness, and they can't figure out how to do that. Unless something very advantageous would come their way. And that's what we pick up as the second piece of bread in this sandwich. We jump down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought, Judas sought an opportunity then to betray him. All this evil is on the scene. There's all this opposition behind in the shadows against Jesus. It's all unthinkable. But now the unthinkable reality of this opposition takes a, a whole nother level. One of Jesus' own joins forces with these religious elites. Now in pursuit to see Jesus killed. It's unthinkable. And heartrending for Jesus because Jesus and Judas were tight. Judas was one of his disciples, and disciples is like going to school with a rabbi, but very different in our context, very different from our context. You don't just go to seminary or go to school, and then come home and go to bed, like leave all your classmates, leave your teacher, or close your virtual screen and then go about your day and pick it up at another time. In this, in this culture, when you would follow a rabbi, you would literally follow the rabbi. You would do everything with that rabbi. You left everything behind to come eat, sleep, drink, do everything, do ministry, listen to this teacher, watch and observe this teacher, do life, follow God. And you're called to emulate that. And so Jesus and Judas have spent so much time, three years together doing this, very close. And Judas was loved by Jesus. Jesus loved Judas. Something begins to go wrong in his heart. Or maybe it was always the case. Don't exactly know. But something's got him at the point where he's willing to betray Jesus. 
And he goes to these chief scribes. He sees an opportunity. And he's got a different value system. There's one value in me remaining a disciple of Jesus and following Jesus, learning from him. There's another value in betraying Jesus. What do I get? What do I as Judas get if I betray Jesus to his death? And tragically, that's what he's got in his brain. That's what he can't get out of his mind. That's what he's determined to get. And he sees an opportunity. Going to the chief priests and the scribes. And I'm going to let them know. I'll betray Jesus. They're pumped. It's an amazing solution to their problem. And inside man, who would have thought? And they give Judas a reward. Saying, hey, if you do this, 30 denarii, 30 coins of silver. Judas loves it. 30 little coins. It's a cheap price. I don't know if it's a day's worth of labor. Very cheap for the blood of another. And yet Judas goes there all the way. He's fully committed. And now he's leaving this, this I mean, you can just see him just sort of walking through the cover of darkness inside this, the city, finding the chief priest. You know, this whole time he's just thinking. Now what's going on in his heart? That conscience war. And he just keeps going one step after another, after another, after another. Until it's done. And it still is not stopping because now he's actively seeking this opportunity. It's a very active, intentional pursuit. I'm going to find this opportunity that I can easily get Jesus away, get Jesus killed, and I can pocket a few silver coins. So chapter 14 shows us what's happening right now is this very dark, ominous cloud is wrapping around this chapter and around Jesus. There's treachery. There's stealth. There's the fullness of demonic influence going on. Satan is lurking. There's envy. There's greed. There's wickedness of every level going on. In the shadows... It's this dark, dark, sick cloud of evil. And into this dark cloud, Mark then beams a light of unbelievably beautiful, a beautiful beam of light just comes busting through this cloud of darkness. And that's what we see next as we turn the next section of this message, valuing Jesus leads to beautiful devotion to Jesus. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Mark, right here, Mark is more theological than he is chronological. We learn from the other Gospels that this story happened six days prior to this incident. So Mark is extremely intentional in how he's inserting this story of beauty and devotion and love and worship 
of Jesus inside of this dark cloud. Like we are headed to the cross, chapter 14 would tell us, and there's no turning back. We're being plunged there. There's this momentum, this gravity, like a, like a roller coaster that's just crested and it begins to go down. We're being plunged into the depths of, of darkness and evil and death. And here is this beam of light. Mark is very intentional. He wants us to see it. He wants to highlight it. He wants to draw our attention to it. So Jesus is chilling with his disciples. They're reclining. They didn't have chairs at a table. They would recline and lay on the ground around this table having a meal. And it's a beautiful moment with his disciples. But then something very unusual, something even unthinkable happens. This woman enters the room. Mark leaves her unnamed. Mark wants to keep her anonymity here, but we do learn it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. So Mary, this woman, comes in, which women weren't allowed to come in to environments like this where all the men would have been around this table outside of the fact that they would be serving food. So there is already this determination that you see in Mary. This devotion that Mary has where she's turning a blind eye to the cultural norms Because she sees so much worth in Jesus, so much value, so much beauty in Jesus. She's coming in. She's compelled to come in and to worship Jesus. And if that was not unthinkable enough, then all eyes turn to her. And she's got this alabaster jar. A stone jar full of pure nard oil from this plant that I think would have come from India. And Mark reiterates it's very costly. We learn in the next couple verses that it would have uh, been 300 denarii, which is at least a full year's worth of a common laborer's wages. So there's expensive oil inside of this stone jar that's been sealed. And it's been sealed because it can only be used for very specific times. Once that seal gets broken, there's no going back. This thing is precious. As some have compared it to like an heirloom, like a family heirloom, like your grandmom's china that gets passed down from generation to generation. Significant value and worth in this item. And she's carrying it. And then she breaks it. She breaks the jar. Mary is fully committed in what she's about to do. And she's fully committed to use all the contents inside of that broken jar. And she goes straight up to Jesus. And she begins pouring that oil on his head. The oil running down his body. John would even tell us it reaches his feet. She begins wiping his feet with her hair. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Almost like this is transfixed moment of worship, incredibly sublime. We might miss it, but it's like for Mary and for Jesus, nothing else exists in the whole world. It's just her and her Savior, her and her Messiah. It's just her and Him, and she is giving Him everything that she can. 
in the fullness of worship, not holding anything back. It's one of the most beautiful moments in all of the Bible. Worship of Jesus. Pure oil. Pure worship. Given to Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Savior. But not everyone thought this was beautiful. And we see that going on with these other men and disciples in the room. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. They're haters. Incapable of seeing the worth of Jesus. Minds not fixed on Jesus, fixed on something else, namely how expensive this oil is and possibly what this oil could have been used for, for taking care of the poor. And they're indignant. This is a hot scene. They're really mad. They begin scolding her like, Mary, what you have just done here is unquestionably wrong. You've completely missed the mark. How dare you is really the tone of this. What a waste. Mary, what a waste. Jesus steps in. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It doesn't matter what the haters think. It matters what Jesus thinks. Jesus comes in right now and vindicates Mary. No, guys, you're wrong. What she has done is exceedingly beautiful in my eyes. You're always going to have the poor, and you should do good to the poor. This passage is not about not doing good to the poor. You should, but you're always going to have the poor. Who you're not always going to have is me, the Messiah, God in the flesh, right here. There is a priority. We've been learning the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. He's standing here. We can't ever... We've got to keep these commands together, but at the same time, we can't replace them and invert them. We must do both. We must worship Jesus and care for the poor. They go together, but they can never be inverted in terms of their priority. And Jesus here is standing before them saying, you're missing me, God in the flesh. But Mary's not missing it. And he says, she's anointed me for burial. She's been taking seriously what they keep missing. Jesus' prediction about his death. So she comes 
to anoint him for burial. It's incredibly beautiful. And Jesus says, for what she's done, she will be remembered. It's like he's looking out in the future, past his resurrection, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And, and you know what? Everywhere the gospel is preached, she's going to be remembered. That's how beautiful what she is doing is. There's an anointing taking place for King Jesus as he goes to the grave. And Mary is right in alignment with the will of God, clearly sees who Jesus is. So then Mary is worshiping and she set out for us as the ideal of worship and devotion to Jesus. She's the ideal that we are to emulate. And in this ideal, she's also set an incredible contrast to Judas and everybody else in this story. Dr. Aiken draws a number of contrasts here that are going on. Mary, this woman with no real standing against Judas, a man, and an apostle of Jesus. Mary, who gives everything she could to Jesus, and Judas, who takes what he could get from Jesus or for Jesus. Mary blessed her Lord. Judas betrays his Lord. Mary does a beautiful thing. Judas does a terrible thing. Mary serves her Lord. Judas betray, betrays and sells his Lord. Like a slave. Mary is notable for her devotion. Judas notorious forever for his betrayal. Mark is setting us up with a contrast. The ideal of worship that Mary would give Jesus worship coming from that. However, the word etymology comes, it comes from worth, worth-ship. Giving the worth to somebody, ascribing worth to somebody is what worship is. Mary is doing that rightly and well. Judas is not. So then Mark is posing us to wrestle with these facts and then to ask, well, who are we? Are we more like Mary or are we more like Judas? How valuable is Jesus to you this morning? How valuable is Jesus? And if we're honest, we're not Mary in the story. We don't act like Mary a whole lot at the time. We're actually a whole lot more like Judas. The scorching reality to our consciences, if they are operating correctly, is that we are like Judas. We have betrayed our Savior. We've not loved our Savior. We've held back. We've used Him. We've leveraged Him, leveraged religion in order to get stuff that we want, to get stuff in this world, to pursue our idols. It'd be very easy for us to read the story, and it is easy, and say, well, I want to be like Mary. Or maybe we position ourselves in the middle somewhere and it's like, yeah, we should be like Mary. I kind of see myself like Mary, but certainly I'm not like Judas. So we kind of throw stones at Judas. We know we're not quite like Mary. 
And so we protest. I'm not Judas. Not that bad. Well, yes, we are. To the extent that we do not identify with Judas is the extent that we are walking in blindness, biblically. Is the extent that we are walking in self-righteousness, standing on some measure of our own goodness, can't be that bad. I'm not that bad. The Bible says that we are depraved as humans. By the grace of God, we stand. By the grace of God, we don't do anything worse. But in the depths of our hearts prior to Christ, we are Judas. You say, well, how is that? I haven't ever betrayed Jesus. Well, that's what we do every time we sin. Every time we sin, we are trading the infinite glory and worth of Jesus For a cheap little price, a cheap little passing pleasure of this world. The same flesh, the same evil, the same seed that's inside of Judas is the same seed that's in us. We are in Adam, and that same flesh is alive in Judas and alive in us. Encouraged by the A quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is what our sin is. There's a pleasure that we're taking. In something other than Jesus. And it doesn't lead well. It doesn't lead to thriving. Judas would go on to hang himself. But here's the beauty of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come metaphorically for a bunch of Marys. He came for a bunch of Judases. He came for the rebel army force of humanity that was opposed to his glory. That wanted Jesus killed and wiped off the planet. The enemies of Christ. The enemies of God. That's who Jesus came for. If you want to deny that, or if you want to deny your own sinfulness, your depravity, then you're also going to have to deny why Jesus came. He came for this very purpose, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. He gets anointed for burial. Because that's his mission. We can't miss the connection here. I think that anointings would also happen when you would place somebody in kingly position of authority and power. Inaugurated as his king, you would, you would anoint someone. And here, Jesus, in this, in this sovereign and beautiful picture, he's being anointed for his burial, but he's also being anointed because he's about to step on his throne. He's about to wear a crown of suffering because it's in that suffering that he's taking his throne, that he's defeating all the enemies of God, all the powers of darkness. Satan 
The scribes, the priests, Judas, others opposing Jesus in the story are not winning here. They are not winning. Their actions, their evil, wicked actions are being routed sovereignly for the glory of King Jesus and for the joy of all his people. They are walking in the footsteps of prophecy. They don't even realize it. Everything's being fulfilled. The fullness of time, the fullness of God's mission and purpose in the Bible is happening here. God's great redemptive act is happening. When Jesus goes to the cross, it is the open display, yes, of our wickedness and how much it cost us. But he's going there as the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice because of how much he loves us. This is why he came. This is what Passover has always been pointing to for 1,400 years. Not pointing to an actual lamb. Pointing to the lamb of God. Jesus himself. Who would die as that lamb to take away the sins of the world. That is worth celebrating As Mary broke her flask and poured out oil, Jesus breaks his body and pours out his blood. A pure act of devotion and worship to his heavenly Father. And an act of love and service to us. Who is it that sees the infinite beauty of Jesus? How does Mary get to a place like she did in this text? I'll tell you who gets to do that. Those who will take by the power of the Holy Spirit, who will acknowledge and own their sin and then see and behold and gaze on their Savior. That's who acts with radical devotion and worship. That's who sees the infinite glory of King Jesus when you see what he did for you in your place. In the end, It is grace that motivates us. It is grace that causes us to pour our lives out for Jesus, to spend ourselves, to give everything we have for him and to him, not because we're flexing moral muscles, not because we're trying to measure up or do good. That's not the divine equation. The divine equation is we can't, Jesus does, in gratitude, then we offer Not to earn his love, but because of all the love that he has showered upon us. Those who are forgiven much, love much. If we have any hope as a church for being like Mary, it's that we would enter in to see our sin and to see our Savior. How valuable is Jesus to you? What is he worth? To you. May our lives answer that well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, that convicts us, shatters our sense of self-righteousness, shows us just how dark and evil we are. As it's been said, God, we are worse than we could possibly imagine, yet we are also loved more than we could possibly imagine. God, may grace rain down on us this morning. 
May you forgive us of all of our sin, all of our betrayal. Forgive us, God. Cleanse us. Renew us by the power of your Holy Spirit and lead us to lives that are spent for your glory. As Paul says, for your sake, O God, we count all things as loss that we might know you, that we might worship you, that we might esteem you, that your name might be made famous in all the earth. God, would it be so in our lives individually and corporately? Jesus, may you receive the glory that is due, the reward that is yours for your sufferings and our eternal joy. In your name we pray, amen.